From Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Madison Knudsen. This is Podcast in Place, a series about youth in Alaska during the COVID-19 pandemic. This fall, Alaska became the state with the highest coronavirus case rates per capita and has been experiencing record hospitalizations. 20 healthcare facilities across the state have been operating under crisis standards of care due to the surge and staffing issues. You have ICU patients that you don't have enough staff to have staffed at one-to-one or two-to-one and that need that amount of care, and they're in beds that are staffed at three-to-one or four-to-one. That is Dr. Andy Ellsberg, an emergency physician in Anchorage. And so you have new patients that are either COVID or not COVID that need that care as well, and it's hard to shift the resources. Um, So you're actively putting the resources where they're needed at the moment the most, and other patients end up on the back burner. Dr. Ellsberg spoke with ATME producer Zinn Rogers to share his experiences working in an emergency care department. He talks about how the increase of COVID patients affects the rest of the hospital, the mental toll on healthcare professionals, and how he's observed the community reacting to the pandemic. They spoke on October 1st, 2021. So I'm wondering if we, you'd be willing to walk us through how your day-to-day before the pandemic went, if, if you can even remember. <laughs> um, I can remember. It's not that long ago. Um, yeah, I mean, day-to-day before the pandemic, um, I mean, in some ways, it's not hugely different, but like day-to-day at work, mostly. Yeah. Or day-to-day. Yeah. yeah, I'd say outside of work is in some ways more different than at work, but um, the biggest difference in some ways being patient mix. So. We, emergency physicians in general, especially at larger hospitals or in bigger cities, Anchorage being a you know full city, um, we work shift work. So we tend to work anything between eight and 12 hour shifts. Um, so show up for your shift, depending on time of day, it can be pretty darn busy or not that busy when you show up. But in general, at a busy hospital, you hit the ground running. Um, there's patients that are waiting. You're just taking a transition from the last doctor and the practice that I work in, we each kind of finish off our patients. So the doctor from the ship before is still there finishing up with the patients that they've started and you're just picking up new patients and, and seeing patients, um, here in Anchorage, our patient mix is pretty, um, diverse. You know, we have a, um, Emergency medicine is primarily medical patients. Trauma is a decent size of our part of our work, but it's not not the bulk of our work. Uh, that's more on TV than in reality. Um, and we see really we see some of everything. Um, and for the most part, we're seeing patients that have a lot of patients that have chronic illness, and for some reason either their illness has gotten worse or they've been off their medications or they've gotten an acute illness on top of their, say, heart failure or diabetes or, um, or other or chronic kidney problems. A, a large par- portion of our patients are, are not healthy to start with. And then for some reason, they kind of fell off their norm and they uh, need to see us. Um, we see a lot of older adults, uh, things like chest pain, shortness of breath, you know, as they 
either have a cardiac event or um, develop new illnesses, say smokers developing COPD and getting in trouble with their COPD. Um, we see a lot of peds. We, um, so lots of kids and the, the spectrum of kids, you end up seeing a lot more younger kids. Typically with, fortunately, the nice thing with seeing kids is that you're mostly seeing younger kids that are doing okay with normal viral illness. Um, and you're there just to make sure that they're like doing okay with the illness they have and, and figuring out which ones are actually sicker than that. The, the healthy enough ones go home and you talk to do a lot of education with parents on how to take care of them at home and, and, um, sort out the ones that are sick enough to be in the hospital and to need that need more. Um, we do a lot of psychiatric care. Um, uh, and so, you know, there's really, the emergency room is also the psychiatric emergency room and that's psychiatric illness is a big part of what we do access in Alaska to psychiatric healthcare in the outpatient setting is pretty poor and it's pretty poor compared to most places in the country. Um, so I would say probably in Alaska, we see more acute psychiatric illness as well as exacerbations of chronic psychiatric illness than most places and are doing our best to sort of help people out and get them pointed in the right direction with limited resources in those directions. Um, and then we see the trauma and we have the full spectrum of normal urban trauma, rural trauma, and then you add in the Alaska trauma like bears and moose and um, a lot more camping, you know, a lot more, a lot of climbing uh, during Denali season and climbing season. We see people coming in and out of the mountains. Um, ski season, like any other mountain community, we see the ski injuries, but also say avalanche incidents and cold injuries. Um, it's a big full spectrum job. So with all the hospitalizations and ICU beds filling up, how are those sorts of injuries, those Alaska injuries or just day-to-day -day life injuries becoming more and more of uh, a problem for people with, like I mentioned, the COVID kind of overwhelming the hospitals? Right. So, I mean, that's the, that's the big impact at work of COVID is that the hospital gets full um, and it, at an end currently, that's primarily the ICU right now. Um, and so the way that one, one aspect of it is that um, patients end up being admitted, but still being in the emergency room. Um, and so we have however many beds in the ER, and then you have essentially take those beds for admitted patients away. And so when the waiting room starts to fill up, we can't move people into the back to assess the new patients because we've got admitted patients in those beds. Um, there are a lot of studies that show that patients that are admitted, um, you know, do better when they're upstairs in a bed where they can be focused on as an inpatient. Um, it's really hard when you're shifting your resources around actively in real time, because we'll have an ambulance come in with, you know, a, like big time emergency, like say a cardiac arrest or a bad trauma or, a, you know, a really sick sepsis patient that takes a lot of resources and we're shifting resources all around constantly in an emergency room. Whereas when a patient's upstairs, the resource that's dedicated to them tends to be dedicated to them. So whether they're not that sick and they're in a four to one nursing ratio, um, or they're really sick and they're in an ICU at one-to-one, -one, that resource is pretty dedicated. We're in an emergency room. We're really always shifting our resources to where it's needed the most. Um, and, uh, and, and that ebbs and flows. So for an inpatient in the ER, 
it, it's hard for them to get the focus that they would get upstairs. Um, and then, and then add to that nursing shortages and, uh, um, and the fact that, you know, you have enough staff to, and, and respiratory therapists and, and techs who are doing a lot of this work too, especially with COVID respiratory therapists are a huge part of that care because it's almost all respiratory care. Um, so you have ICU patients that you don't have enough staff to have staffed at one-to-one or two-to-one and that need that amount of care. And they're in beds that are staffed at three-to-one or four-to-one. And so you have new patients that are either COVID or not COVID that need that care as well. And it's hard to shift the resources. Um, so you're actively putting the resources where they're needed at the moment the most and other patients end up on the back burner, whether that's upstairs um, when the ICU beds are full or whether that's in the ER, that, that, that actively is happening when we become more overwhelmed. You know, the last thought I saw was 20% of the beds are filled with COVID patients in Alaska. Um, you know, take away 20% of our patients and we've got plenty of capacity to deal with anything like we pretty much always do. Um, and right now we're, we're definitely shifting resources to, to actively sort of sort out who needs them the most. So with that massive rise in hospitalization, how do you think that people who are choosing not to get vaccinated have contributed to that? I mean, it's, it's super clear that um, places with really high vaccination rates and some other mitigation as well are doing okay. They're, you know, they have the Delta variant is causing more breakthrough, but people who are vaccinated in general don't end up hospitalized. The protection against hospitalization is still really strong. Um, but when you have a large pool of unvaccinated people who aren't masking and are still gathering normally, um, you have a ton of virus circulating. And so, um, that that's truly impacting Alaska in a number of ways. One, and that we have a lot of breakthrough cases. So people who even who got vaccinated are still stuck at home isolating or their kids are out of school. Um, and then the, the big impact on us is that um, uh, we have a hospital that has a lot of patients and with COVID um, as well as our normal patients. And we're, you know, our job is to take care of everyone and that's what we do. Um, but if we had fewer COVID patients, which more vaccination would lead to fewer COVID patients that need admission, um, we would be able to handle the number of patients that we see uh, more easily and everybody would get the quality of care we wanna be giving. There's a, there's a clear linear relationship um, essentially between vaccination rate and the stress on the system. In your work in the medical field, how many uh, people do you encounter who are unvaccinated, who are in the, also in the medical field? You know, I work in an emergency department, so it's probably a little bit tweaked. Um, to be honest, I don't, you know, it's such a sensitive topic in the U.S., uh, which I, I don't understand politicizing something like this. To me, this is, this is like simple health stuff. Um, my brain doesn't work, really work that way. Like, I... I uh, yeah, like, you know, I'm an emergency physician and most of us who work in the ER, like we, our job is to take care of whatever comes and we're used to taking care of lots of people that make choices that we would never make. And so we're pretty used to sort of turning that side of our, the judgment side of our brain off as best as possible because our job is to just take care of people. A little bit of that spills over into our day-to-day -day relationship with coworkers. So like 
I think in this situation with the politics around it, we tend not to talk about it too much. You know, your coworkers that you know are sort of agree with you. It's easy to like have those conversations. Um, you don't want to alienate anyone that we work with currently. But to be honest, from like background noise in the ER, there's almost no one in the ER that's that's not vaccinated. I mean, we see we see the effect of this really clearly every single day. Um, the stories that I hear the most part in the media about nurses and docs and um, people in the medical field who are choosing to stay unvaccinated, um, they're not in general, you know, I, there are obviously always exceptions, but in general, they're in other specialties, they're in other parts of the hospital, they're in um, uh, the the impact on staff in the ER that's unvaccinated is pretty small. With you having to be at the hospital and also your coworkers having to be at the hospital constantly around the virus with it kind of starting to overload the hospitals, how worried are you personally about contracting, uh, getting COVID, even with wearing masks, wearing any other protection and being vaccinated? We, for the most part at work, like most of us are wearing an N95 which is respirator quality mask pretty much the whole day. Um, sometimes to give my face a break from it, I'll put on a, a surgical mask when I'm at the computer and I have some space from other people. Um, just from experience, I mean, I've, I've intubated, um, you know, active COVID patients, um, uh, coding patients that turned out to have COVID. Um, I mean, that's as much of an exposure as I can possibly get, and I haven't contracted the virus. So um, between vaccination and an N95, I, I feel safe at work. The, the period where I think that we felt unsafe was at the beginning when there were shortages of PPE and we hadn't been around the virus as much. Um, but I, I feel safe at work. Most of the people that get coronavirus in the care setting are either the people that are trying to pick and choose when they wear what PPE. So if you just put a N95 on and, you know, in the ER where we have a ton of exposure and just wear that mask all day with every, every patient exposure um, and, and eye protection, either face shield or eye protection, which is basically the standard for us, um, then it's pretty easy to stay safe. Um, if you're picking and choosing level of protection, I think that's an easy way to walk into the wrong room and not know. Um, and then the other place where COVID spreads in the hospital, like in any workplace, is the break rooms, the places where people let down their guard. Um, and that's been throughout the entire pandemic because people do have to go eat. Um, and when you're around your friends and coworkers, it's easy to let down your guard. But there's obviously because it's circulating in the community, it's, it's circulating in our community as well. So in general, the people that get it aren't getting it from patients um, unless there was a mistake with PPE. At the start of the pandemic, it seemed like the elderly and those with lots of underlying conditions were the most vulnerable to the virus. But now it seems like it's primarily affecting the unvaccinated. Um, so in your experience, is it otherwise healthy people who are tending to be hospitalized now? Um, it's a it's a mix, you know, that the. I think the impact of this surge is that there's just a huge number of people with it. And so even though the likelihood, say, of a younger person, say, in their 20s of getting super sick from COVID is lower than, say, someone in their 80s, um, you know, you magnify that number of patients in their 20s who have COVID and you're going to get a number of super sick ones. So 
the impact's just kind of across that whole community of unvaccinated. And then percentage-wise, the, the the good thing in Alaska is that older, older, like over 70, are pretty highly vaccinated. So in general, other than the, the very occasional breakthrough case of a vaccinated patient who gets really sick or the few unvaccinated patients that we see that are older, um, you know, that impacts a little bit less on the older community now. Um, but it's kind of shifted to the younger partly because there's so much coronavirus circulating in that community. And when I say younger, I mean like under 60, but on down into 20s and even teenagers. Um, and uh, the, the bulk of the infections have shifted that direction. And then also the bulk of the vaccinations is at a higher rate in the older community. So it's not affecting that community as much. Like you hear, I hear a lot about people in the community who are older who end up with it either because of grandchildren who are, you know, can't be vaccinated yet because they're under 12 or, um, they tried to be social and it didn't work out and they have a breakthrough case, but all, all of the older people that I'm hearing about are doing okay. And, you know, before vaccination, that wouldn't have been the case. And so I've been, and I'm sure I have lots of other people have been hearing about natural immunity from getting COVID versus the immunity of the vaccine. And so this is a two-part question for those who have had COVID. How long is what do you say is the recommended wait for uh, getting the vaccine? And then is there a difference between the natural COVID immunity and immunity gotten from the vaccine? Uh, I, th I think it's hard to, you know, all of the studies on natural immunity versus vaccine immunity are going to be retrospective and population based. And that is not a good type of scientific study. Like it's hard to really draw conclusions from that stuff. Um, and um so it, it's hard because you're not comparing apples to apples and um, you're comparing one study in one community that has a disease burden of a certain amount and a variant of a certain type. And, you know, th those studies just really don't work very well. Um, and so it's easy to pick and choose and, and for people to like make a point that they want to make based on the study that they choose. So back to the part about how soon should you wait after you have COVID to get immunized. The official line is that as soon as you are um, finished fighting the infection, like you're asymptomatic and it's been more than 10 days since you tested positive is that you can get vaccinated at any time. Um, you know, I don't know of anything convincing saying that there's more side effects from the vaccine the earlier you do it versus the later you do it. Um, I have seen multiple people, uh, including some coworkers who got COVID more than once um, early on before vaccine. And there seemed to be about a five to six month spread between those two events. Um, they were folks with young kids who were in, in daycare. And so they just, that exposure was coming into the house asymptomatically, wouldn't know. And, you know, and, and so it's hard to manage that exposure. So, and, you know, the, the, in terms of travel, the, the allowance has always been three months because we think that that natural immunity really starts to wane after about three months. And that kind of fits with what I've seen in terms of people who've gotten infected more than once. Um, as variants come along, that could change, obviously. The other studies that seem to be pretty good are that the people that have natural immunity and then get a vaccine have the best, most robust response to the vaccine. Again, that's a study those are studies looking at antibody response and it's hard to pull those people out of the num the population numbers to say who actually got sick and who didn't um but you know i think that the two com 
I would not recommend anyone get COVID so that they get that response. I mean, that that's not like a smart way to go about it. But if you had COVID and you have some natural immunity, when you get the vaccine, you will most likely get a really good response to the vaccine and be better protected than than some other people. Um, I've heard a lot of the talk about natural immunity versus vaccine associated immunity. Um, and I, that's been taken in a bizarre direction to me. Like, is one better? So is it better to just get it that way? And and it tends to be the the rhetoric is around, you know, that it's better to just get COVID and not get the vaccine. Um, and that's, that's kind of a warped view. Um, because one, we do know that that wanes, whether it's vaccination or natural immunity, um, and that eventually you'll need a booster either way. And two, if you want to use that as a strategy to achieve herd immunity, um, then you, if you're going to rely on natural immunity, then you're, you're actively encouraging overwhelming your resources and making the hospitals not function. So that, that actually like that makes no sense. And on top of that, a lot of people dying along the way. Um, I've seen like a couple scattered significant vaccine reactions um, and people in general, those, those aren't a big deal. Um, there's a very, very rare hospitalization for one here and there, but we see, you know, COVID patients that are sick enough to be either on high flow nasal cannula or intubated or BiPAP machines, you know, that, that basically would die if they stayed at home and are only alive because they're at the hospital. And then many of them go on to die. Like there's, there's no comparison between the risk of the virus and the risk of the vaccine. And then with those patients who were dying, have you encountered any of them who are unvaccinated or are still and are still denying the reality of COVID or the severity of COVID? My experience in general has been people that are um, they're actually actively telling you that they wish that they had not. They're they're like actively telling me that there's so much misinformation there, and I wish that I hadn't listened to it, and I wish I'd been vaccinated. That's that's generally been my experience. Um, and then I've also had the experience of people who just don't want to talk about it, um, but they're accepting the reality that they rolled the dice and they got COVID and now they're sick from COVID. I've, I do have colleagues who've experienced that and I haven't. And, you know, I mean, our, our job is just to, what you do see, whether they are accepting or um, remorseful or actively arguing with you, because I have had people argue with me about it that in my case, that just weren't that sick, you know, and I'm discharging them and, and talking to them about care at home and I'm talking to them about isolation, um, which is, you know, kind of what you're supposed to do to keep your community safe. What I do see with the sick ones, no matter their perspective is they're scared. Like anyone who is not getting enough oxygen in general is, uh, and, and is feels like they might, die which a lot of these folks come in feeling like like they are scared and so you know we don't take that stuff personally and i'm not we're not actively engaging and you know and arguing with people that are scared we're just trying to take care of them and make them feel better like that's the that's like our main goal at the time and that's what we try to do we'll be right back
Alaska Teen Media Institute is looking for youth to join our team. As a youth producer, you can conduct interviews like the one you're listening to right now, edit audio, record voiceovers, help write scripts, and much more. And all of that is paid work. So if you are between the ages of 13 and 24, living in Alaska, and interested in joining at me, go to alaskateenmedia.org slash join. You can also email us at news at alaskateenmedia.org. Now back to Zinn's interview with Dr. Andy Ellsberg. Uh, to have another kind of pivot to just a bit of a non sequitur question, but one that's a bit interesting anyway. Have you had any pregnant patients with COVID? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's actually an important topic to talk about. Um, uh, I, I have, and uh, they are definitely higher risk. Um, and, uh, you know, higher risk compared to a woman, a healthy or unhealthy um, female at childbearing age, if they're pregnant, is, is much higher risk with COVID than a patient who's not pregnant. Um, and that's really clear in the data, and it's really clear in what we see. The vaccination safe in pregnancy. It really is. I mean, it's it's a hard headspace, I think. Obviously, as a male, I'll never know that headspace, but I definitely see it, you know, and I have kids and, um, you know, I've been through that parent decision-making um, process and it's very different than being a doctor. Like when it's your, when it's your own partner's pregnancy or your own kids, like it, it's, you're, it's all that very, those very personal decisions. But, um, and it is, there's like, it seems to be this like in, you know, wired in response uh, for women to be super protective, uh, which is natural. That totally makes sense and be nervous about putting anything into their bodies, um, which in general is a good response, right? Like you don't, you don't want to be eating poorly and smoking cigarettes and drinking alcohol and, uh, and, and lots of medications don't go well with pregnancy. So it's, it's really important to be careful when pregnant, but uh, it's really clear that the vaccine is safe and effective in pregnancy. And it's really clear that getting COVID when pregnant is much higher risk than, than someone who's not pregnant. And then how would COVID affect the pregnancy, like the health of the, the baby and the health of the mother? You know, I don't really know necessarily why specifically pregnant women are at higher risk. I mean, in general, they're at higher risk of any illness. Uh, when they're pregnant because just because their body's, you know, sort of, it's kind of the resource thing, right? You have so many resources in your body and you're sharing that with, with the growing fetus. Um, but uh, in general, if the mom's fighting off a mild infection, then the fetus probably isn't affected too much. Um, I do believe there's been studies that show that antibodies cross the placenta um, and um, that that would be typical with a lot of illnesses. Um, uh, but when a mom is getting hypoxic, you know, um, so their oxygen level is getting low, well, that's, that's shared with the baby as well. And so fetuses to develop, they need good, healthy conditions with plenty of oxygen. Um, and they need the mother to be able to share that oxygen with them. Um, and so any patient with COVID who's getting sicker is they're dropping their oxygen levels. And that's the primary treatment that we do in the hospital is, you know, um, give people oxygen by various means, whether it's just a couple liters by nasal cannula or higher flow oxygen or CPAP or intubation. Um, we're mostly trying to keep them well oxygenated so that they can 
take care of themselves. And in the case of a pregnant woman, they need to be well oxygenated to take care of the, the growing baby. So we've been talking a lot about current COVID, like patients who actually have COVID, but what about long-term COVID? What sort of treatments are there for it, if any? Right. You know, this is where I have to pull the emergency physician card and be like, yeah, I don't really see people with long COVID much. Um, that's that, that world is, is a little bit separate. Um, but, uh, you know, those are long COVID being people that seem to have persistent symptoms, um, mostly like a lot of fatigue and some people, some neurologic symptoms. I mean, COVID's a virus, right? Like, and in some ways it's not that different than other viruses and that it can sort of attack whatever part of the body it ends up in and wants to. Um, so you can have complications with COVID in any organ system. Um, you know, flu is similar that way. It's just the, the problem with COVID is that it, it gets a lot more people really sick than other viruses. And as a population, we haven't seen it before. So we don't, we don't have immunity and it's a coronavirus. And so we don't get long lasting immunity. So, you know, as you're hearing about boosters, um, it's unfortunately, it's one of those viruses that we don't keep lifelong immunity. That would be really nice if we did. So the long COVID seems to be affecting people in, in kind of any organ system. Um, and, uh, the one thing that I do know about long COVID is that a, a fair number of people seem to have had some recovery with vaccination. Um, and that's kind of a promising thing. Um, but, you know, long kind of subtle stuff is really hard to figure out. And I, so I think that long COVID is super frustrating for patients um, because nobody has any good answers. Um, and uh, it's, it's easier to sort, you know, especially as an ER doctor, but I think as a physician in general, it's way easier to sort out something that's very in your face and dramatic and like someone's super sick and we can step back and I can look at their respiratory system and support that. I can look at their blood pressure and support that. I can, you know, look at their kidneys and support them um, and just step back to organ systems like a critical care doctor normally does and, and support a patient in that way. Um, trying to sort out kind of subtle symptoms that are lasting and impactful on somebody's life, but they're still healthy enough to be out in the community. That's a, that's a really hard thing to do. And, and obviously for the people with that problem, super frustrating. So we've talked a lot about uh, things that are in the news and the public sphere in general, but for you personally, what concerns do you have? About COVID or just about the whole situation we're in? The whole situation, but also COVID. Uh, I mean, I guess they kind of tie together, you know, about COVID. It's just, I would really like to go back to work and have like normal, f what makes an ER physician and nurse, what makes an, an emergency room function? Um, one comes down to the, like, we function as a team, right? And uh, it, probably as much or more so than any other part of medicine. Um, like going to work, having a good stable team, um, you know, people are, enjoying their their work and enjoying taking care of people um the the psychological side of that's being impacted big time you know so people are like we're still a team and we're still working together but it's it's hard to be in the in the medical setting right now in the acute care setting right now and so you know that that shows when people are working together so we're supporting each other and there's a large part of the community that's clearly supporting us um but you feel that part of the community that's not like they seem to be quite vocal about it and uh, i'm not sure why they choose to direct it at us but they do um 
even though we'll be taking care of them at some point for something at some point in their lives. Um, and we'll, we'll do it because that's what we do. So, uh, coming into work with a team that's like psyched to be there, um, where there's not a high rate of turnover actually, because the stability of that team, there's a lot of trust involved when you're working with docs and nurses and respiratory therapists and techs, um, in an intense case where things need to happen and they need to happen quickly. And, you know, knowing each other and knowing each other's way of working is, is a big part of that. Um, knowing where everything is in an emergency room because we cover so many different problems um, is really important as well, right? You ask for a certain tray, you know, say like in a crazy trauma thoracotomy tray, like somebody's got to know where to grab that and have it right at the bedside super quickly, you know, when you have a trauma that's that bad. Um, so having a stable staff and people that you trust and people that you work with. Um, and then patient flow is just a huge part of like having a functioning emergency room. So a waiting room that's not getting too backed up. All your rooms are, you know, patients when they get admitted, go upstairs. The rooms open up. We have new rooms. We put in a new patient. An ambulance comes in. Um, and then the flow in the hospital, like, you know, when we need a CAT scan or an MRI or X-ray, um, all those resources are functioning well. So for people to be happy in an emergency room setting that work in that setting um, and for patients to be getting the best care that they can get, like all of those stars are aligning and, and going well. And then it's a super rewarding profession to be in. Um, and it's the best patient care that we can give. Like that makes, that makes all of us happy. Um, the impact of COVID on like division in our community, I'm, I'm finding for me, that's, super hard. I don't really get it. Um, I, you know, this is a time when I think our community should be working together. Obviously, we're going to have different opinions about the, you know, economic versus health versus risk, you know, and risk benefit analyses of COVID and all of that. Like people will have different opinions. I get that. Um, and uh, at some level that that it intersects with our political sphere. Um, but the way that we're dealing with it here is just, I, I'm just finding it sad. Like it's, you know, I feel like uh, the community is not being a community. And that's, um, I, I get that COVID is frustrating. Like it's frustrating for everyone. Um, and that it it's something that none of us have experienced in our lifetimes that impacts us in a longer term way than any of us expected. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's different ways to express that. And uh, I, I wish that as a community that was being expressed in a, a little more civil discourse and um, not, not a lot of really dysfunctional discourse. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's impacting the headspace of a lot of people um, in Alaska, in Anchorage, in the U.S. in general. Oh, totally. With all of that added stress brought on, especially by this virus, I can only imagine that there's plenty of your colleagues, plenty of nurses and doctors who have to quit, who can't do the job anymore, or are having PTSD from these experiences. Could you talk about the psychological toll that's on um, the psychological toll on you and your coworkers throughout the pandemic? I don't, you know, everyone reacts a little bit different. I mean, that's kind of the wild thing about psychology, right? Like everyone's a little different in how they respond, and one stimulus on one person is different than the exact same stimulus on another person just as much as and and even the same stimulus on the same person at two different times is really different um 
Yeah, I, I think it's just that. Like, this has lasted longer than any of us thought. Um, in term, in as the hardest part of the psychology is that, like, we know that this current level of surge is avoidable. Like, this is a tr- this is a vaccine preventable illness at some level, and we have we are seeing a lot of vaccine present- preventable hospitalizations um, because the vaccine's best at presenting, preventing hospitalization with Delta. It's, it's, it's good at preventing any illness, but not as good as the prior variants. And, but it's really good at preventing ho- hospitalization level illness. So this is essentially a vaccine preventable situation that we're in. And I think as like the, the hardest part of the psychology is just that we are in an avoidable situation and um we live in a community that as a whole has chosen not to avoid that situation and um it's really hard not to personalize that impact um and especially with all the anger out there it's uh super hard not to take that on ourselves um and so the disconnect between what we see at work and what we see out in the community is uh, is really difficult. Um, and um, working in an emergency room is it's an intense job, and it's that teamwork and flow and positive cases that kind of keeps it good. Um, and when there's a lot of negative noise outside work that you're trying to tamp down, and then and then that's affecting. Um, what you see at work and your ability to do your job, um, it's just plain hard. And then, yeah, and people are responding to that in a lot of different ways. I think in terms of my sense of like the impact, the people that are feeling the impact of like watching people get sick and die um, at the highest level, that's gotta be critical care. You know, in the ER, um, people in general pass through, right? Like we're, we're occasionally seeing people that come in close to coding and then code and die in our presence of COVID like that happens, but that's not, um, that's not the average COVID patient. The average COVID patient that's sick enough to stay in the hospital comes in in some level of distress. We can get them feeling a little bit better with oxygen support, usually high flow nasal cannula for the sicker ones. Um, and occasionally intubation and, uh, and then they go eventually <laughs> after sometimes after boarding in the ER for a few days, um, they go upstairs. And so, and COVID patients tend to stay in the hospital a long time, whether they live or die. And, and so I think the hardest impact uh, of COVID has been on critical care um, because they are taking care of these patients for a long time. They're getting to know the patients. Um, even if they're intubated, they're getting to know the families over the phone because they're, you know, communicating with families. Um, and at that point, these things don't become political anymore, but you know, right. You're, you're taking care of a really sick person. You're communicating with a family that cares about that person. It's somebody's husband or wife or daughter or son or grandparent or whatever. Um, and it's all very much at the human level. And while it's pretty easy in the ER to dissociate a bit, from like we deal with the acute setting and then that patient moves on. Um, We are a little bit protected from that. I think the biggest impact of COVID is on the critical care setting. And uh, those folks are going through um, 
super intense, super high, high number of patients and a high percentage of patients that are dying on their watch and under their care. And that's, that's gotta be super hard. No, totally. Um, and then how do you think your experience in that way and just in the pandemic in general, especially now with the surgeon cases is different as an Alaskan ER doctor than an ER doctor elsewhere in the United States? I think that I actually spend a fair amount of time in Canada as well. And so, um, you know, my sense of things is a mix of both Canada and the U.S. Um, I think that, like, it's it's Alaska along with all the other states where the vaccination rates are low. And, and kind of in the U.S., it's almost all of the U.S., really. There's only a few states with high enough vaccination rates with Delta. Um to be able to like have a pretty good um control of of covid um uh though i mean there's a decent number of states i guess that have had better control of delta um and it's not just vaccination it's willingness to do things like you know mass mandates um and things like that which truly do have an impact um and I think they're, to be honest, I think their economies are in better shape as well because everybody feels more free to go do things, whether, um, you know, it's not, it's not a political decision to go to a restaurant. It's just a, hey, there's not as much COVID. I feel comfortable doing that. And it doesn't really matter what your politics are. Um, so I think economically, those places are doing better as well, actually. So I think as an ER doctor in Alaska, I live in a place that has a low vaccination rate and we have COVID ripping through. And I also live in a place where the politics are such that other mitigation has been, you know, by choice avoided. Um, and so we're seeing the effect of that. And that's what's happening to our hospitals and to our ERs. Um, and, uh, and that's affecting the hospital's ability to you know, do elective care as well. Um, any elective care that's going to need an ICU bed is getting pushed off. And that's pretty significant elective care. If it's going to, you know, if that patient's going to need an ICU bed afterwards, they're, they're putting something off that's pretty important. Um, so I think the, the big difference is it's not just Alaska ER doctors. It's, it's, uh, it's physicians in any state where there's a low vaccination rate and a high Delta burden. Um, our, our lives are pretty similar at work and, uh, in the States where, and in the countries where things have been better controlled, um, they're, you know, they're doing some COVID obviously, cause it's in the community, but, uh, they're also, their job is more normal and their healthcare system is more normal. I can imagine just to get outside of COVID. Um, what do you do in your free time outside of the hospital? Yeah, right. Because that's super important. <laughs> it is. That's that's the part of mental health that I think is is important for absolutely everyone, especially during these times. Not just people in health, right? Because like COVID's impacting all of us, like no doubt. You know, whether you choose to mitigate or not, like it's it's impacting us. And uh, my main things are to get outside and um, and ski and bike, and I run a little bit. And uh, but just be outside, and everyone in my family everybody's happier when we're doing a lot of things outside. So my days off are um, usually getting out to either Kincaid or up on the hillside or, um, I don't know, went up flat top the other day to see how deep the snow was and um, just being outside and being in the parts of 
being around the friends that I have here that are, you know, we, I, uh, while the virus burden is this high and, uh, um, do something outside, whether it's biking or in a, you know, in a little bit here, skiing or, um, or just going for a hike or a run. That's what I do and hang out with my family, which is, they're good folks. <laughs> yeah, totally. Just before we wrap up, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to talk about or that you think is important to mention? I think the really important thing to remember, no matter where you're at on the risk benefit of any of the aspects of COVID is that um, decisions don't just affect yourself. Like the, I think for youth, actually, a really important point is that Yes, like young people are at lower risk of COVID being a bad illness for them, though we are seeing it. Like I heard a story about a teen that was um, kind of a scary story. Um, and, uh, but, uh, but still, like if you just look at the numbers, which is the way I look at both the vaccine and the virus, um, from a more science perspective, you kind of have to step back a little bit and get rid of the individual stories. And, you know, the vaccine for younger people is primarily about decreasing the amount of virus that's circulating in our community. Like this is a, this is something that younger people are doing for the community, probably more than they're doing for themselves on an individual level. And I think that that's an important part of all of this that's getting missed somewhere. You know, there's a lot of people that are focused on the individual risk of COVID to say 14 year olds, um, and why should they get vaccinated? Well, there are some 14 year olds that are getting super sick and occasionally dying. And, um, and then there's an inflammatory reaction that sometimes happens in kids that's rare, but happens, but it's pretty serious. Um, and then on the vaccine side, there's you know a very rare myocarditis that seems to happen in younger people, um, but is almost 100% fully recovered. So um, a transient thing but still a scary thing to read about. But when younger people are getting vaccinated, it's less about protecting themselves from severe illness, though it is, um, and more about we need to decrease the burden of disease in the community or we're not gonna get out of this situation. And that's, that is the way to decrease the burden of disease on the community, like decrease how much circulates. Vaccination's our way out, it just is. Well, thank you, Dr. Ellsberg. I think this has been a great interview. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no worries. Thanks a lot. And uh, thanks for your questions. They were good. That was at me producer Zinn Rogers speaking with Dr. Andy Ellsberg, an emergency department physician. You've been listening to Podcast in Place from Alaska Teen Media Institute. Our show's theme music was composed by Devin Treckengost with additional music from Kendrick Whiteman. You can find these stories at alaskateenmedia.org, where we have included resources for youth in partnership with the State of Alaska Division of Behavioral Health. Alaska Teen Media Institute is based in Anchorage, Alaska. We would like to acknowledge the Danina people whose land we work on. Many thanks to the supporters of our podcast, including United Way of Anchorage and individual donors, James McCoy and Rosie Robards. The views expressed in this program do not necessarily represent the views of our sponsors. Thanks to our listeners who contribute to our programs and help us leverage additional funds and grants.
If you'd like to support Youth Voices in Alaska and help keep our podcast going, you can support us through Patreon. It's a membership platform that makes it easy for you to support creative endeavors like Atme. Just go to patreon.com slash alaskateenmedia. You can also help out by subscribing to, rating, or writing a review of our series on Apple Podcasts. Every little bit helps us get our stories out there. And don't forget to check out our website, alaskateenmedia.org. There you can learn more about what our organization does, discover more youth-produced content, or find out how to get involved. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for all sorts of updates. For Alaska Teen Media Institute, I'm Madison Knudsen. Thanks for listening. Stay safe out there. We'll get through this together.